Good morning, everyone. I see that we have a few attendees who have joined us now. So welcome. If you are new to the lunch break sessions, we're thrilled to have you here. If you're a longtime veteran, thank you for joining us again. My name is Jay Woodworth. I work as the Christian Street Specialist based out of Bible Hill at the Perennia office. And I have joining with me today, Al Angrizion, who is the Forest Safety Society Manager, and he's going to be giving a presentation. That's going to be our main component for this afternoon. So I'm going to start out just by doing a quick introduction to the lunch break webinar series. If you've joined us before, this will be nothing new. And just kind of reviewing how to go about using the Zoom platform for a webinar series. So we call these the lunch break technical series. These are intended to be webinar sessions that are on informational topics as requested from Christmas tree growers in Nova Scotia. We do these over the Zoom platform, mostly because of the pandemic that hit us. So we've been doing them on an online format the best that we can. And um, so our lunch break webinar series are always held during the last Tuesday of every month, unless it falls on a holiday or whatnot. We have them over the noon hour session. So it's intended that you'll be able to join and have your lunch while you get some training. And if you're interested in joining the mailing list, you can see there's an email address displayed there. That is Brittany Furnett's email at the Christmas Tree Council of Nova Scotia. And if you email her and ask to be added to the mailing list for the lunch break webinar sessions, she'll make sure that you get the details to join. Um, also, if you're unable to join us over the noon hour at the end of the month, then you can easily find these sessions on YouTube. They are recorded live, so I post those as soon as they're edited and then they will be uploaded and you're able to access them on YouTube anytime you like. To find them on YouTube, you can go right to Google or right to YouTube and just search Christmas Tree Council of NS. And they are all there. So I'll do a quick introduction for today. As I mentioned, we have Al joining us. He's currently the manager of the Forest Safety Society of Nova Scotia. He has worked as a forester since 1975, mainly in silviculture and logging. And he is a wealth of knowledge, so we're very lucky that he was able to join us today. So I'm going to go ahead and cut off my screen and give Al the ropes so that he can go ahead and share his screen and take us through this presentation. Good evening, folks. My name's Al, and uh, pleasure to be here today. Uh, you'll have to bear with me since uh, this is not normally what I, I do. Uh, normally, I do these things uh, in person and uh, with groups, of, you know, larger groups or smaller groups. But what I want to do today is give you sort of an overview of what uh, a company safety program is, uh, some of the key components, and try to answer some questions if people have them. Uh, you'll see down there by the title, I call it company safety programs, just good business. Uh, no matter if you're a Christmas tree grower, a logger, civiculture worker, uh, some form of manufacturer, safety is just a key component to running a good business. Uh, anyway, as, as I was saying, as the title says, company safety programs is just good business. And regardless of your business, if you don't take care of safety, uh, you're going to run into trouble of some sort. Uh, with today's uh, abundance of workers, we can't afford to not run safe operations or, or safe businesses and lose workers because they, this could have been prevented. So I'm going to start going through a series of slides. Uh, I believe if anyone has any questions, I do well with questions, but just, you know, send a chat message and uh, we'll try to respond to them. So, so it's just good business. 
So I like to always highlight that, you know, a lot of businesses in forestry in Nova Scotia, we're doing a lot of good things. Uh, you'll notice in the slides that it'll refer to logging or contractors. Uh, it's from the presentation I've used before. But Christmas tree growers along with logging contractors and civil culture contractors are doing a lot of really good work. Uh, that's reflective in our WCB rates. If we weren't doing good work, our rates would be up around 10, 12, 15 dollars per hundred. So uh, we've done a lot of good work and contractors are doing the ones that are doing the work, the growers are. Uh, what I find going out to visit with contractors and other businesses, I find that the weakness is uh, some people don't know what they should have, but if they, even if they do, the weakness that I find with the small business comes, tends to be in the area of documentation. Uh, quite often the contractors or the businesses are doing the things they should be doing, but they're not documenting it. They're not being able to demonstrate how they're doing it. Uh, company safety programs typically focuses on systems and processes. And you'll find out a little bit about that. But if you have a system or a process that ensures that you have a fire extinguisher that's charged when you need it, uh, and it's in the place that it should be, and you can actually get to it, uh, if you have systems that check those things, then when you do need that fire extinguisher, you're more likely to uh, have it. If all you do is have a, a compliance type system where you, okay, you go out and buy a for, uh, fire extinguisher, but you don't have a system to make sure it's there and it's charged and it's workable, uh, when you do need it, it may not be there for you. I say regardless of who you're working for, uh, it should be independent. Um, so in the logging sector, uh, some contractors have to have a company safety program just to be able to work on crown land. Uh, it's sort of like safety equipment. I can remember when high-vis equipment came into the industry, uh, the truckers that would haul on private land wouldn't wear their high-vis, and when they went on company land, they would. It shouldn't matter who you're working for. Safety is safety. Your workers are still important. Some outcomes you can expect from a, a well-working safety program is long-term, you will end up with a safer workplace. Uh, if you wish, uh, a safety program can be a neutral vehicle to improve communications in a business. Uh, most people are committed to safety, be it employers and employees, and it's a neutral uh, topic that people can improve on communication if they wish. And the other thing, and as important as anything else, a well-working safety program that has all the components will help assist you in protecting your business and your family. You've all worked hard to get what you have today. You continue to work hard. One mishap can lead to problems and, and nobody needs that. So it's to protect your business as well as to build a safer workplace. Here are the basic components of a safety program. And it doesn't matter what sector you're looking at, they all have these general things and they'll be tailored a little bit depending on your business and the way it operates. But it starts with the company safety program, general rules, hazard assessment, inspections, and you can read the rest. Uh, a company safety program is nothing more than a, a, a series of policies that you have within your company. 
And a policy is nothing more than a statement that says what you're going to do. And I'll, you'll see an example as we go through this of what I mean by that. A procedure is basically uh, a written document that says, how are you going to carry that out? So how are you going to do a hazard assessment type of thing? And then documentation is just proof that you do what you say you're going to do. It all starts with a health and safety policy within the, in, a, in a company. And this sets the stage and it sets the stage in, in a number of ways. It indicates to your workers and, and your, the people that you work with and for uh, that safety is a priority for your business. It's dependent upon leadership. Safety does not start at the grassroots. Uh, the owner of the company has to show to his employees and through his actions demonstrate that safety is key. Uh, I know of a sawmill that was out in BC a number of years ago where they were having some problems and a new manager came into the sawmill. And when he's walking around the sawmill, he saw a guy put his hand somewhere he probably shouldn't have. And the, guy, the, the new manager stopped the sawmill and or stopped the guy and said, why did you put your hand in there? And when he did that, the, the guy said, if I don't move that board, it's going to jam up the line if it goes sideways. All right. The manager then brought in his managers or his, the regular managers in the mill and he asked the question, why? And then they proceeded to basically overhaul their procedures and end up making some changes because sooner or later he knew that that was going to cost the man his arm. So, but it starts with the, the management of the company and the owners indicating that safety is important. It should include a statement of commitment. This is right out of the act. Uh, shared responsibility and a statement of cooperation. And I have a sample one here for you. This may be hard to read, but I'll, I'll quickly read through it. As I said earlier, I, I do a lot of work with loggers. So I've got this fictional company I've made up called Safe Logger Inc. But it says Safe Logger Inc. is committed to the protection from accidental loss of all its resources, human and physical. So I want to highlight that because sometimes we think safety is just broken bones. Uh, no, it isn't. If you're damaging equipment, you're going to bleed dollars. And if you bleed dollars, you may not be in business. So it's, it's important to think of it's not just the, uh, the, uh, the people side of it. In fulfilling it, this commitment, Safe Log Rink and management will provide and maintain a safe, healthy workplace in accordance to industry standards and in compliance with all legislative requirements. Strives to eliminate foreseeable hazards in the workplace that may result in harm to person or property. If you're a small business, you may not have the next part of this, but managers and supervisors will be trained and held responsible for, in, for ensuring that the workers under their supervision follows this policy. Workers use safe work practices and procedures outlined in the, by the company. Uh, equipment and facilities are safe. Safety is a shared responsibility. Management and, and employees shared responsibility of owners, management, and employees. Management personnel are responsible for maintaining a safe working uh, conditions on job sites. We pledge to cooperate with our employees, representatives, in all matters concerning health and safety of our employees. 
And each worker must support the health and safety policy, report to management any hazards, uh, incidents, injuries, illnesses related to the workplace as soon as possible, and protect their own health and safety by completing the following, following, the following regulations and procedures. So basically you've got there the company saying they're committed, they're willing to work with their people, and it's a shared responsibility. And that goes right to the heart of the act. You go to the section two of the, the uh, Occupational Health and Safety Act in Nova Scotia, is a statement of the internal responsibility statement where everybody associated with that workplace has a part in providing safety, providing for safety. Next section is company rules. Uh, these are things that every business should have. These are the things that unfortunately in today's world, you need to write down. They're simple little things like, no, you can't steal my diesel fuel. No, you can't fight on the job. No, it's not acceptable to be under the influence. If you don't put those sorts of things, unfortunately, down in writing, you can find yourself in a situation where I wasn't told that I, don't, I, I can't be drunk on the job. Guy gets hurt and then he comes, you find yourself in court and you may lose because you didn't clearly tell him that you can't drink on the job. Uh, you shouldn't have to do that in today's world. But if you don't do those types of things, you may find yourself having to dig your way out of a hole. You want to outline the consequences. So using the one as an alcohol, if a person's found drinking on a job, what's the consequences? Uh, it could be immediate dismissal. It could be a written uh, warning. It could be three warnings. You decide what the consequences are as a business should be reviewed at the time of hire. That's the time you want to clear, establish clear expectations of what's acceptable in the workplace. Uh, if you're working with existing workers and you don't have some of these things in place, then you'll have to do it possibly through a tailgate meeting or a company meeting of some sort. But the best place to do it at the time of hire. Uh, you want to find, get that out there clearly. I'll move on to hazard assessments. As an employer, uh, employers are responsible for identifying and controlling hazards of the workplace. Forms of hazards may be health or maybe safety. Health we generally think of as exposures to possible chemicals, could be heat exposure. It's things that affects the general health and they're typically longer term before they show their effects. Uh, safety is usually fairly short to notice, it's a broken bone, it's a laceration, it's something fairly quick and obvious. And quite often we think of those, and we don't think of some of the you know, long-term health effects that we might have in the workplace. The key factors in terms of uh, looking at it, hazards or where they come from, hazards are generally generated from this five groups, these five groups. Uh, people making mistakes, faulty equipment or wrong equipment, materials that you're using, the environment, or the processes that you're using to do the work. They're typically hazards are identified through workplace inspections or task analysis. And, you, and you control these hazards through a number of strategies. Uh, if you can eliminate the hazard, eliminate that task in your process, you take it out of it so that people aren't 
necessarily doing it. Uh, sometimes it, you can substitute something. So if it's a chemical that's very hazardous to handle, maybe you can find a, a, a friendlier one that doesn't have the same risk. Uh, sometimes we can engineer the hazard out. Uh, so that might include putting guards on pieces of equipment to prevent people from putting their hands in places that you would rather than not put them in. Administrative controls are, are uh, safe work practices or procedures, basically written ways to do that job safely. Typically, you may have a number of those in, the, in, the, in a business. And personal protective equipment is one uh, strategy we use to control uh, hazards in, in the workplace. So in a Christmas tree operation, you probably have a chainsaw. And we would possibly wear uh, leg protection, either chaps or chainsaw pants, while you know, harvesting trees. Uh, so we can use PPE as a, as a means to control the hazard of leg cuts. Here's a sample of a, a hazard assessment policy. It just says there, Safe Logger Inc. will conduct a site hazard assessment prior to the start of all harvest operations and will be reviewed by all workers before commencement of any work. So that's just saying you're going to do a hazard assessment. You're going to look for hazards before you start that job. This becomes a little wordier. Here's a, a procedure. Uh, the purpose of the hazard assessment is to determine the probability of an incident or accident due to site conditions on the job and determine remedial action to remove or manage the risk. So unfortunately, this is more of a logging example, uh, but this will be done either by the employer or a manager or a foreman on the job site. He's gonna look at, okay, what are, the, what are the risks that we're dealing with? And we look at two parts of that risk, the severity of it and, like, and the probability of it happening, okay? So if it's something that if it goes wrong, it's gonna be catastrophic, a serious illness or death, uh, you wanna pay strict attention to that. Also, if it's something that you do uh, frequently, so it's highly probable, you really wanna be aware of those hazards. So something that's catastrophic and probable, you do it a lot, uh, you wanna be aware of. Uh, some hazards that are in the workplace, it's a paper cut. It's nothing too serious that's gonna happen. So the, the, the severity may be negligible. Uh, and it's something that you don't do often. So it's extremely remote. So let's say changing the paper in the photocopier. You know, it's a paper cut and you only do that once every five years when you happen to be in the office and the, the photocopier is out of paper. Uh, you gotta put things in perspective and how much energy you put into controlling them determines, you know, these factors help you determine how much energy to put into controlling them. Uh, we, we typically would use a, a site hazard assessment checklist of some sort. And for logging sites, here would be one that might, uh, uh, would fit for most logging operations. And probably some of it would fit into a Christmas tree harvest operation. So such things as visibilities for trucks, uh, the road surfaces you're driving on, uh, visibility, uh, if you have truck turnarounds, uh, water courses in wet areas, if you're working under standing trees, which likely wouldn't be but widow makers. 
So you could come up with a list of things that you would consider as hazards that you should be looking for uh, prior to starting work. The findings of the assessment would be then recorded some way or another. Uh, a lot of small logging contractors uh, typically aren't great at doing paperwork. They don't care for doing paperwork. So one strategy to wrestle down the paper monster is to keep things, certain things recorded in the daily agenda. Uh, you can go to Staples, you can buy one of these a year, and you can basically, if you start a job, you can record found a, a steep slope on the site, or there was power lines to be aware of, or the entrance to the road was poor. You can make a simple note to document that you know, you've done your hazard assessment and you've recorded it. Um, you can turn your checklist quickly into a form if you wish. So you can do this and, and, and make a list of it. The key next part of uh, doing a hazard assessment is not to just know, it, but know about it yourself, but you also want the workers to know about it. So the finding hazard assessment shall be shared verbally. So typically, the, the, the business owner or foreman on the job site would share that is a pre-operational meeting to say, okay, here's some of the hazards that we've got to be aware of. And I encourage people to record the date that they do that type of thing. Uh, you don't want to be an employer that finds himself standing in front of a judge and then saying, being asked the question, well, did you do a hazard assessment? You want to be able to say yes, and you want to be able to demonstrate it. Well, the next thing you want to be able to do is answer, yes, I did tell the workers about it. The last point here I, I like to make is that uh, realizing that a person can't walk every square foot, can't see everything that's on a job site, realizing also that the under the act, uh, safety is a shared responsibility uh, that all workers should be looking for potential hazards and they should be communicating them to the appropriate people at the appropriate times. So if a person finds himself or finds something that could be a hazard, he should bring it forward so that other people know about it. Inspections is another component of a safety program. They're a tool to ensure that things are the way they should be. And what I'm talking about inspections here isn't necessarily so much on the equipment side as it is, do you have your safety resources in place where they should be? Or are they stocked? So for example, is there a first aid kit? Is it an appropriate first aid kit on the job site? And does it actually have bandages in it or not? Uh, all levels of management can participate in this. So it could be shared. It could be a shared responsibility depending on how you work and, and how you'd like to work. You may have a safety rep uh, do an inspection periodically. Uh, you may have a Josh committee on your job site. They may do them from time to time. Uh, you kind of want everybody keeping an eye out, you know, are my safety resources in place in case I need them? Uh, there should be formal inspections and informal inspections. The former ones are generally planned or scheduled. Uh, I recommend that they be done at least quarterly. Uh, you, as I said before, you don't want to find out that there's no bandages in the first aid kit when you've got a person who's on the ground bleeding. It's the wrong time. The findings should be documented. So 
you should write down that yes, we did an inspection. You should have some mechanism recording that. And whatever you find, you find. And then you should take corrective action. So if there's something that is missing or something that is broken or something that's out of order, uh, you record it and you record the, reco the corrective actions. And while you're doing your inspection, you're always looking for hazards. The informal inspections are just generally a part of doing the daily work. They're not a scheduled thing. They may include such things as pre-start checks and daily maintenance. And you encourage workers to speak up if they happen to see any hazards. So the pre-start checks, if you're harvesting Christmas trees, you probably have a chainsaw you're doing it with. And there is a pre-start checklist that you would have in the owner's manual for a chainsaw that they would check that the chain brake works, they check that the chain is on right, it's tensioned correctly. A variety of things that you would check. You would check to make sure that they, you know, I have all my PPE to go to work with a power saw, sort of thing, those types of things. But they're more informal and they're usually when you pick up a tool, that's when you do them. Another component of a safety program is maintenance. It's fundamental to achieve sufficient uptime, particularly if you're talking about equipment. So if you've got power saws and tractors and balers, a variety of other tools that you're using or pieces of equipment that you're using, if they're not maintained so they work the way they're supposed to work when they need to, you end up with downtime and downtime just costs you a lot of money. So it's, it's best to have, you know, you want your uptime as high as possible. Basically refer to an operator's manual. You don't have to think this up. If you just bought a new tractor, probably came with an operator's manual and in there they'll have what the maintenance routines are so what's the what's the interval for changing oils uh what is the interval for a variety of different tasks type of thing so you can check that into the operator's manual it can include preventative and predictive in, uh, maintenance so preventative is if you've got a, a machine with a, 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 some hydraulics on it you may be looking uh, for frayed hoses that are, you know, starting to look tired and looking like they're about to let go. That's kind of preventative. Uh, doing your oil changes, changing your filters, those are preventative maintenance activities. Predictive is getting into such things as oil analysis. So to predict, am I about to lose a pump? So, you know, some people participate in programs like that, but if you can predict it and schedule the repair or the maintenance on your timeline versus when the machine broke down and now everything stops, it's a more productive way to do it. And usually while the operators are doing the regular maintenance, they're looking for potential breakdowns. Do I have a seal leaking somewhere? Uh, is there a vibration? Is, you know, is grease fittings missed? You know, things like that you'd start to do. Uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, obviously, that's part of our world. Uh, must match the job and the hazards. So if you're working, you know, so whatever you're using for personal protective equipment should reflect the type of work that you're doing. Should be CSA approved or some other recognized body, but in Canada, typically CSA is what we're looking for. Uh, out of the force professional, if, you, if you're familiar with that publication, uh, in part of that booklet, there's a section on uh, safety equipment to do a variety of jobs. And if you look in there, you'll see 
some things that are identified for Christmas trees for shearing, using an axe, a baler. And, but here's some of the things that, you know, should be in place depending on what the workers are doing. Uh, the hard hat if there's an overhead project, uh, hazard. High visibility, visibility clothing, clothing isn't listed in there, but it has evolved uh, as more or less uh, something that most workplaces require so that people can see you, uh, have a chance of seeing you. So if you're working around tractors and there's equipment moving around, uh, a high-vis vest increases your chances of being seen. Safety glasses and side shields. Uh, safety boots, depending on what you're doing. Uh, some work just requires grade two, uh, grade two boot. And if you're operating a power saw, requires a grade one. Hearing protection when the noise levels go over 85 decibels. Depending on what you're doing, leg protection and possibly leather gloves. So these are things that should be in place. You should have a process to check that from time to time and make sure that people are wearing it. It's no good to have a policy that says that people have to wear PPE, then nobody wears it. Safe work procedures. Uh, these are the administrative controls that was mentioned about you know, how we control some of our hazards. And these are put in place when the hazard cannot be eliminated. We're sometimes referred to as safe work procedures or standard operating procedures. And use a ranking system. Uh, any job site probably could have about a thousand of them. What I encourage contractors or businesses to do when they're starting to build their safety program, decide what's important and which ones should I develop. Uh, one, most people don't have time or a full-time person to start writing these things down. So I, I encourage people to, you know, take a month, list all the various tasks and jobs that are going on on that job site, then use that, go back to that hazard assessment and the ranking severity and probability and kind of help you prioritize what's important. Then you have to kind of look at how much time do I have? You're running a business. You may be one of the workers. You got 10,000 things you're taking care of. Do you have time to sit down and write 200 of these things? Probably not. So pick, you know, prioritize which, is, which ones are important, which ones will give you the most value. And then decide, uh, you know, how much time do I have and how many can I do? And then start working at them. Uh, eventually you will get all the important ones done, but nobody you know, expects you to have them all done right, right away. They'll typically surface, the need for these safe work procedures will typically surface after a near miss, something almost happened, or unfortunately something did happen. And we have had an incident of some sort, and we now realize that we've got a gap in our safety program and our procedures and how we conduct our work. Uh, so then you may look at and you may say, well, could we eliminate that? Could we engineer the problem out? Could we change our PPE or add something? And if you say no to all those things, then you're probably looking at coming up with a safe work procedure. How do we do this so people don't get hurt? And I encourage people to Encourage the workers, the people that are doing that job, to participate. Uh, you as an owner 
probably are fairly familiar with all the aspects of your business, but you may not have been doing certain parts of it for a period of time. Uh, you may have a wealth of you know, knowledge there within the workforce that you could tap into to help come up with, you know, what's the best possible procedure. So I encourage, you know, employers to tap into the resource they have in their people. They should be periodically reviewed. So are they still relevant? Uh, did I get rid of that piece of equipment? Uh, if, if, if you've got rid of that piece of equipment, the procedures that were associated directly with that probably should be removed. And they need to be available to employees. So the employees need to know where can I find it? Where can I find the information if I need it? Sort of thing. So if you've got it in a binder and the binder's back at home in your office, it serves no purpose for the guy that's in the field today needing that information. So typically, you know, you should have your safety manual and your procedures on a job site accessible to workers in case they need them. Here's a, here's a sample of a safe working procedure for working alone. Um, this is sort of a, a, a thing that I, I feel relatively important. A lot of people don't uh, understand that we do have situations at least in the logging and the civiculture sector, where people are working alone. And there's an, in an increased hazard uh, of working alone. So I'll quickly go through this. Working alone has the added hazard of isolation. That if, ha if assistance is required, there's no one there to assist. However, in unusual circumstances, there's a need for equipment to be separated and actually employees to work alone and to manage and minimize the time employees will be down following the procedure must be work when working alone. So here's a couple simple steps that must be typically approved. Uh, employees must have a minimum emergency first aid training. Employees must have a means of communication, dependable transportation, must have a remote location plan. Uh, if they're really remote, they may utilize something called spot and there should be a contact person. Uh, when I talk to logging contractors, say, we never work alone. And then I always throw out the question, well, by the way, who do you take with you when you go to work, go to look at a job site? And typically they tell me they go with themselves or they bring their dog typically. So there are situations where it does come into play. And all the working alone procedure is basically a contact procedure. You kind of, I encourage people to have uh, designated times instead of you know if you say mid-morning mid-morning might be 10 o'clock or might be 11 o'clock or might be eight o'clock it's good to have those times established and basically what you're trying to communicate is that you're okay you may need okay with assistance or there's an emergency and you need help uh, usually the employers the uh, somebody within the employers the contact time but if it's not if it's a, a wife or a spouse um, then, you know, as long as someone is checking in, because what you need to know as an employer, you need to know that all your workers are upright and are okay. If you can't, if they don't make contact, if you don't hear from them in designated time, and you'll notice I put, let's say, between 9 and 9.30. Uh, I don't expect a phone call or a text message right at 9 o'clock, because he might be doing something and his hands are busy and he can't do that. 
but I give the worker typically 30 minutes to make the contact. If he doesn't make the contact, the next step is the, the contact person tries to reach out to the person to find out if he's all right. And if, he, if that can't be done, then someone has to go to worksite to find out. Incident investigation is what we're talking about, accidents or, or damage to equipment. So it can be either injury or damage to equipment. Uh, the goal is not to lay blame. The goal is basically to determine what the root cause is and to find out what really was the cause and prevent it from happening again. Al, just interject there. We have a few questions. Do you have a oh. moment to answer them? Sure. Okay. Thanks for interrupting me because I think I'm just talking to myself. <laughs> no. All right. So I'm just going to read through and give you a chance to answer these live. How often should inspections be done and where do you keep the documentation? Okay. I recommend that uh, inspections of your safety resources should be done at least quarterly. Uh, depending on your strategy for documentation, uh, myself, I have a small business. I typically use a daily agenda and I keep all my inspection results in that. So I don't use a, a checklist. I use a checklist that I know and I basically just write on the day I did the inspection. First aid kit was empty. Uh, if you want to use forms, then you would have that, you would have a form with things that you're checking, first aid kit, fire extinguisher, whatever else you want to add onto that list. Um, then you would basically put that in a file and keep it in, in your records down the road. That's, that's a couple different strategies. I know contractors who actually do it on their phone. They are better with their phone and better with technology than I am. And they basically keep it in their notes on their phone. So what you want to have is you want to have a record of that the inspection was done because you want to be able to think of, you know, that at the end of the day, you want to be able to answer the question, do you do inspections? Was the first aid kit there? And when was the last time you checked it? Um, who has the right to come on farm and inspect safety protocols? Who has the right to come in? And, uh, I would say the, the only one that might have, um, uh, the right to come in and inspect would be Department of Advanced Education and Labor. Me as a safety society, I don't have the right to come onto your business and inspect. The only one that has a, the, the legal or the legal authority to go in and inspect safety is Department of Advanced Education and Labor. Uh, if you happen to have an industrial accident, however, uh, what you'll find is if it was a fatality, an explosion or a broken bone, uh, you're required to notify the authorities and depending on the severity of it, you may also be visited by the RCMP. But typically people don't have the right to go in. Now, if you're, if you're in, in the logging sector, uh, which is a little different than the Christmas tree sector, if in the logging sector, if you're working for West 4 or one of the companies, well, they'll always maintain the right to come in and check things. That, that'll be it. The other time that someone might come in and, uh, and inspect things would be you decide you want to participate in an audit program and you contact me or another provider and we'll come in on your request and do an audit of your safety program and your safety on your job site. Uh, but I haven't got the right to walk in and just do it. 
uh, have to be invited. And then typically if I'm being invited, when I'm going there, it's more for education to help. I'll point out things that uh, could be tightened up. But I don't have any authority to write orders or tell anybody. All right. How do we motivate employees to take safety more seriously? That's tough. That's tough. Uh, people become complacent. Uh, we can use, um, basically, we can use the tailgate meetings that I'll mention in a little while, but you try to encourage safety. Uh, you're going to have to tell them stories. You're going to have to, if, you find, if you've heard of somebody that got hurt on a different uh, Christmas tree operation, you probably want to maybe, if you could get a copy of the accident report or get the, the pertinent details about what went on and share that with your workers. Share your experience and things that have gone on. Uh, it's very difficult because like I say, people are people and they get busy and they don't necessarily put the emphasis on safety that they should until something bad happens. I'll, I'll share quickly one time I had a, a person come to me that had taken first aid probably about six different times or probably 15 times. I can't remember. He's an older worker. And he was told by his employer he had to take a first aid kit course, again, because you have to take it every three years. And he really gave me a hard time about it. And I told him in my office at the time, I said, you don't take first aid for you. You take it because it's to help someone else. And, and, and the studies show that most likely the first aid you provide will be on a family member. Okay, so I started to bring it to him and his family. Uh, he begrudgingly took his first aid kit because he, of course, he had to take it. He didn't have an option. But about six months later, don't I get a visit from that same fella? And sure enough, he had a son that was choking. And because he'd participated in first aid so many times, he knew exactly what to do. You want to try to bring it to their level. You want to try to say, this is how this impacts you. And don't let them use, well, it slows me down, I'm less productive. Safety is not less productive. You can be just as productive in a safe way. And typically, most things, most incidences, safety is only a microsecond in the equation of doing the job. It's just taking that split second to realize, oh, there's a bear trap there. I shouldn't put my foot there. It's usually, it's not a long drawn out thing, but you've got to constantly be communicating that one, safety is important. Two, you as an employee is important to us. We need you to be safe. We want you to go home safe. We care about your family's well-being. That paycheck that I give you every week helps your family put food on the family and send the child to the college and things like that. So you want to try to bring it to a personal level as much as possible. What should be included in a first aid kit? Most job sites, depending on the size of your operation, basically St. John's Angling Standard 2. And on the back of a first aid kit, you can go to the Shoppers Drug Mart, you can pick one up there, either St. John Ambulance, it'll be a standard two, and you'll have an inventory of what's in in terms of bandages, how many bandages you should have, 
Uh, compression bandages, triangular bandage. It depends on the first aid kit that you're using and that is dictated by the size of your operation. So the, the more employees you have, the more first aid supplies you require. I, I tell employers, and, you, and go back to the inspection. As part of inspections, you're supposed to inventory, know that your first aid kit is supplied. Uh, is supplied. You're fully stocked. I tell every employer, buy two first aid kits when you buy one. Leave one of them in the cellophane wrapper. Don't open it and tell nobody to open unless somebody's on the ground bleeding to death. And then have a working one that people take bandages out and you kind of just fill in the supplies as you need it. That way, if an accident or incident happens, you know you've always got the proper first aid kit to go get. That one hasn't been opened. You know that the bandages haven't been taken out of it. Okay, so we're talking about instances. Uh, 80, one thing that research has shown us is that 80% of in investigations show that human error was the root cause of the incident. However, if you dig a little further, you find out that 80% of the time of that accident or that incident, it was something other than operator error. So it's the person wasn't properly trained. The person didn't have the right tool or the tool was wore out or broken. The person just didn't know how to, how to do, go about it. Uh, there wasn't adequate supervision. Uh, the processes that we were using had an inherent flaw. Uh, a hazard assessment wasn't done, thus a hazard wasn't communicated and a person made contact with a high voltage line. There's all kinds of different things other than human error. Very seldom is it actually truly just human error that's the root cause. And I can cite examples where, you know, I've read incident investigations where people have, you know, had that make contact with that high voltage line. And the reality, it was the processes and the way the job was laid out that led the situation where the guy at three o'clock in the morning hauling wood didn't forgot that the line was there and didn't lower boom. The problem wasn't that he forgot to lower the boom. The problem was that he should have never been going underneath that. That operation could have been done differently so he didn't have to be in that situation. Also something that research shows is that if the actual root cause, the really cause, the really thing that caused that accident to occur isn't determined and corrected, that likelihood within seven years, you're gonna have something similar. It may not be exactly, but there's going to be similarities there. And this was a little crude, but I asked people, how do you pay for stupid? And I say stupid are accidents that happen that could have been prevented because you've had the experience one. And the accidents are paid for by profit. You have to look at what your profit margin is, and that's how you recover it. So let's say someone didn't get hurt, but you damaged the piece of equipment and it cost you $1,000. How many Christmas trees do you have to sell that the profit margin is $1,000? It's not, let's say, 100 trees. If trees are $10, it's not just 100 trees. It might be 1,000 trees because your profit margin is $1 per tree. So I feel that it's something that contractors and businesses really have to pay attention to so they don't have to live that experience 
again, possibly in another seven years. Uh, they should be reviewed and analyzed to see if there's trends. If you see the same thing happening over and over again, you need to look at why is that happening over and over again. You may have to look at, we got to kind of come up with a better procedure. We better find some better PPE. We better stop doing this because we're running out of workers. So you need to look at, is, is there a trend happening? Now in Christmas trees a few years ago, we looked at some of this stuff and we didn't find definite trends. Like one, one incident that we looked at, it was a broken bone. Another one was a cut finger. They were all over the board. But if you're not looking, you're not gonna see a trend also. And you may wanna consider future training on incident investigation to help you get to that root cause. Employee representation. This is just some of the things under the act. If you got less than five people, there's no requirement for uh, a representative. Between five and 19 requires a health and safety representative uh, within the company. And when you're over 20, you require a joint occupational health and safety committee. Uh, representatives must be elected. They can't be appointed. They sometimes are voluntold, but they need to be elected by their peers and you need to be able to document that either through a tailgate meeting minutes or something like that, that these people pick their own safety rep type of thing. But you as an employer can't say, Bill, you be, I want you to be the safety rep. The workers have to decide who they want to be their rep. Josh committee is a little more formal. Uh, you don't want any more than 50% management or employees. You want to keep it so that you're not slanted that way. And they have rules and procedures and minutes are kept and usually there's a schedule for rotations and they usually co-chairs between workers and the management side of the business. And there should be a poster. You need to be able to post or people need to know who the rep is and how to contact them as well as you need as an employer to provide the Department of Labor's 1-800 number. So if a person wants to call the Department of Labor, you as an employer have an obligation to provide it. And usually you would put that on a, on a poster, you know, just a sheet of paper uh, and make sure that everybody knows where it is, where it is so that if they want to talk to the rep, they can call them. Most small employers, this isn't much of an issue. Usually if a person has a problem, they don't go through the rep, they usually talk to the employer themselves and small employees with small employer basis. Uh, and usually things get resolved fairly quickly. Safety meetings are a component of a, a safety program. Uh, we sometimes call them tailgate meetings. They should be about monthly. They shouldn't be very long. Uh, you, most of them are under a half an hour. They can go longer. Uh, if they go longer, that's great, particularly if there's conversation. If it's not just you talking for an hour, but you've got employees engaged, that's a good thing. The purpose is to share information obtain some input from employees on how to do things maybe better, address concerns. You always need to open up the door for them to air concerns that they have. Uh, report out, uh, back on outstanding issues that you're, you're working on, and you wanna foster uh, clear and open communications. You want people to feel that they can say what they need to say and it won't be held against them. And be taken in the, in the constructive way, hopefully it'll be given. They don't always give it to you constructively, but 
you do need to take and you need to hear it. Can be a vehicle for some on the job training. I quite often when I'm doing this ask people, how many people have taken WIMIS? And usually I get a whole bunch of hands go up. And then I ask people, how many times have you people taken WIMIS? And you sometimes find out they take it every three years. Well, that's the wrong use for WIMIS. WIMIS doesn't have to be taken every three years. It doesn't expire. But what you do need to do is have an on-site WIMIS program. And that the tailgate meeting can be a vehicle to do some of that on-site training, on-the-job on training. And minutes are kept and made available to the employees. It might be put on a safety board somewhere in the workplace. Uh, I know employers that put it, you know, just put it in with their next paycheck and they give them a copy of it that way. Uh, you give them a copy of it or you post it somewhere so that if they want to read it, they can read it. And it can be used to foster a safety culture. So you need to have a topic. Typically part of the, the meeting will have a, a safety topic. And again, promoting the, the concept of safety and keeping everybody healthy. Training, employers responsible to ensure that people are competent under their employment. Competent doesn't mean that you've gone to college, doesn't mean that you're a licensed mechanic, means that you have the appropriate education and experience to do that job. And a lot of the work, I'm fairly certain in the Christmas tree industry, it's pretty well all on the job training. There are a few legislative requirements for training, such as first aid, witness, possibly transportation of dangerous goods, chainsaws. Those are, there's a few that are legislated that you have to have, workers have to have. Uh, you need to be sure that you, know, you have those things in place. Uh, there should be a record. You should keep a record of the required legislative training. And on-the-job training should have who did the training and what was it, and a training outline attached to it so that you can be sure that everything that needs to be covered was covered. And if you could ask the question, what was, you know, who did the training and what did they cover, you want to be able to provide that. So if there was a serious incident that uh, Department of Labor got involved with, they may ask you some of these questions and you want to be able to answer them. So it's a simple outline. It also helps the trainer prepare to deliver the training and be sure that he doesn't miss anything. And at the uh, employee orientation, get copies of the certificates and review the company safety program and policies and rules. And this is just a simple form that you know you could have where you can check off that yes, we've covered it. It's no good for you not, you need to cover your safety program with your workers. Either if you're doing this with a new employee you do it right up at front right at the front end of his employment or if it's existing workers people that are coming back you know for another season then you might do it through a series of tailgate meetings to cover them uh, giving them the binder saying go home and read it and tell me you read it doesn't really cover it a lot of people do it but it really doesn't you don't know if they actually know what they need to know so i find that doing it over a longer period of time with them, uh, you know then they have the information that they need to have. And then documenting their, their uh, legislative training that should be in place. And then you basically have them sign it, showing that they've gone through the safety program, and you would sign and date it, and then would be kept in the personnel file 
in case it was ever needed to be referred to. Also, you could look at it to find out when did they have first aid, has it expired. Emergency preparedness can be, emergencies can be in the form of fire, injury, medical or environmental. They're essential to notify, it's essential to be able to notify and get assistance as soon as possible. And you must be able to get help to the work site. That's why you have, you get prepared for emergencies. Uh, need all employees to remain calm and deal with the situation, which is not always easy. And you need to have the appropriate resources on site. So you have to look at what your work site is and, and what do we have to have? Do we need, to, one, we have to have first aid kit. Should we have a first uh, stretcher? Uh, should we have splints? Uh, definitely have firefighting equipment, those types of things. Do we have the resources that we need to be safe? in the workplace, are all the required PPE that, because sometimes they don't have to wear all of it all the time. This would be a remote location plan. So even if you, you know, you're working on the same Christmas tree lot, this would be good to have somewhere and people would know where's the nearest civic address. So if you have to call the ambulance, you can say the nearest civic address is such and such on highway what? That way people on the other end of the line quickly find out which county you're in get a quick idea of where you are so they can dispatch help type of thing. It's good to know uh, where you can make a cell phone call. If you're in an area that don't have cell coverage, you wanna find out where do you go that you know you can make a call consistently. Uh, wanna know where the nearest hospital, fire department, and ambulance might be. The other part is if you're rather remote, and, and Christmas trees may not be quite as bad, but turn-by-turn turn directions and how to get there. So if you're going off the road, until, if you've got a lot that's back off the road a distance and there's a number of turns on the way in, you want to have turn-by-turn turn directions with, you know, which way to turn plus the distances between turns so that people can find you. I'm just going to quickly say that under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, there are a few things that, you know, you should be familiar with as an employer. Uh, there's a whole lot of sections to it. There's more than 63, but I tell people sections 2, 13, 17, 29, 33, and 43, and 63. Those are the ones that you definitely want to be familiar with. Uh, if you're a small employer and you don't have uh, greater than 20 employers, employees, then you won't read section 29 on Josh committees. But take a look at the sections and understand what it is. It's boring reading but you wanna go through and see what your requirements are, or what your, they call them, uh, precautions and duties. You wanna know what you're gonna be held accountable for. And you wanna understand what the, the right to refuse work. And in the case of an accident, what do you, who do you have to call? And at what accident? Do you have to call a person for a paper cut or a, a laceration? No. Do you have to call them for a death? Yes understand what you have to call for and report. Due diligence. This is doing what a reasonable person would do. If there's any significant incident, this is where the RCMP and labor, events, education, and labor will come into uh, investigating, determine the cause. And don't think they're there just to find out what the cause is and help you do an accident investigation. They are actually there to determine was there negligence. If there was negligence, there could be significant consequences. I have, uh, I know of an employer who had an industrial accident. 
he had a safety program. I've audited him a couple times. Um, it was an unfortunate thing, but it happened. The RCMP and labor was there. The fact that he had a safety program and he could answer the questions and demonstrate this is the way we work, there was no negligence. It turned out to be actually an accident. He said this was not pleasant, but he got through it. And the fact that he had a safety program and he could answer the questions and demonstrate he did the things that a reasonable employer should do just made the thing go a whole lot better for him. And due diligence is your defense against negligence. You need to be able to demonstrate as an employer, you did what a reasonable person would do in a similar situation. Documentation is how you demonstrate your exercise and due diligence. Having a safety program and having the documentation to show that I did the hazard assessment, I've done the inspections, I do inspections, I make sure my people are trained. We do conduct tailgate meeting minutes, tailgate meetings. And we also have a number of procedures. Now you might not have all of them and you might not have the one you should have had at the time. But the fact that you're, you build safe work procedures, uh, demonstrate that you are an employer that aren't be, isn't being negligent. They can be in the form of forms, daily agendas, or they can be kept electronically. Audits is one part of demonstrating due diligence. These are third-party audits. They're done by an outside agency, such as ourselves or others. And they're looking at your safety program and your operation from an outsider's look to help you see what you're missing. What might happen is if you're working in that workplace all the time, there's things that you just overlook, unfortunately. It's human nature. Uh, so it's getting another set of eyes to help you improve your operation. It shouldn't be critical. It should be a constructive exercise. It demonstrates commitment and provides the mechanism for continuous improvement. So through going through the audit process, I've audited some companies three and four times. And every time I pick up something else and there's something else. And, and one, one employer said to me once, you know, you gave me another 10 things. Why didn't you just give me all 30 of these things at the start? I would have fixed them all. And I said, if I would have given you 30 things that you had to work on, you would have thrown up your hands and said, I'll never be able to do this. And you wouldn't even try sort of thing. So I tend to give them, you know, we're working towards continuous improvement. It's a risk management activity. By doing a hazard assessment, you're increasing the likelihood of not having that accident. There's types, different types of audits. There's compliance audits and process audits. What we provide uh, here at the Force Safety Society is, is a process audit. Compliance audits, we don't have a problem with. If someone tells you to have a first aid kit, you get a first aid kit. You have to, they come on, they look for your first aid kit and your fire extinguisher and different bits and pieces of your operation. If you're told that you got to have it, you typically don't have a problem having it. The process audit is a little differently. We're looking at, do you have processes to ensure that all those other things are there and in working order? And we provide auditing services, but so did there are other auditors that can provide the same thing called safety certified audit or certificate of recognition who might be names that you've heard in the past. Thank you. And I hope I didn't put everybody to sleep.
that's my contact information. And if anybody has any questions, you can always email me or call my cell phone. That's the best way to reach me. That was excellent. Thank you so much, Al. I think you covered a lot of information that everybody really needs to refresh on and get a chance to see. So that was wonderful. Thank you for joining us.